Hi, I'm Byron Tyler, and as we approach the Christmas season, I've invited my friend Ronnie Collier-Stevens to help us put into perspective the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, areas that we may fall short in recognizing His uniqueness, and for us to fall down and worship the King, who was born as a human in Bethlehem, but with a divine nature. Welcome you, Ronnie. Merry Christmas. Thank you for joining us. Merry Christmas to you. It's a delight to be with you. Thinking about what must have been going on in the mind of Joseph and Mary at, uh, at the time in history when Christ did come, the Scripture tells us in Galatians, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son. Both Luke and Matthew give accounts of Jesus' birth. How do they differ from each other? Well, of course, Luke is the fuller account. That's something we can learn from because Luke was the third gospel written. And think of all the disincentives. One disincentive was that it had already been done before. It had been done before twice. It had been done before perfectly twice. And it had been done by two people who actually knew Jesus personally, an advantage that Luke didn't have. So one reason he fought through those disincentives was because I doubt very seriously if he had any idea how big what he was about to attempt would become. I think there are some hints, maybe Paul knew, that what he was writing would one day be regarded by believing people as on a par with Old Testament Scripture. I'm not sure that Luke knew that or even thought of that. But he was trying to disciple one person named Theophilus. And because he was going to disciple Theophilus, we know about the manger, we know about the swaddling clothes, we know about the shepherds, we know about the angels over Bethlehem, and we know about what some have called the four hymns of Christmas. Um, the Benedictus of Zechariah, the Magnificat of Mary, the Glory in Excelsis Deo of the angels, and from Simeon, the Nuc Dementis, now let thy servant depart. The ancient scholars gave them Latin names. So aren't we relieved that Luke went forward? Yes, I think it's also interesting to note that Luke seems to deliberately challenge Roman imperial theology, where the divine conception of Caesar Augustus was held as the greatest of the Roman emperors and ruler when Jesus was born. It said that he was conceived by the god Apollo in the womb of his mother Atia. His titles included Son of God, Lord, Savior, Bringer of Peace on Earth, inscribed on the coins in the temples, the public media of the day. They continued to be used by most emperors even after Augustus. Augustus was actually called the Pontifex Maximus, the highest priest. So the gospel accounts of who Jesus is were a direct threat to the Roman dominance of that whole idea of the God-man, which is, of course, a New Testament concept. It wasn't really a Hebrew concept, but the Romans had no problem deifying men. Hercules was half God, according to Roman mythology. But, of course, Jesus was someone um, vastly more highly elevated than any Roman conception of deity. The Roman deities were nothing but supersized human beings who had all the frailties and foibles and sins of humans, but they just had extra powers that they could sin with. Ronnie, Luke's birth account is depicted, seems to be through Mary's eyes, while Matthew gives details of Joseph. Why is this important? Well, Luke actually tells us when he does his little foreword for Theophilus in Luke and Acts, that he did his research. And I think a part of his research was interviewing Mary 
We don't know for sure because Scripture doesn't tell us, but there's a strong tradition that Mary was resident in Ephesus. Of course, if you go to Ephesus today, they'll have Mary's house. Well, of course, that wasn't Mary's house, but the tradition is not outlandish. It's not a hard thing to believe that Mary lived long enough for Luke to interview her, and it does seem that he had inside information. The sources of books of the Bible can be guessed at, but we need to remember that the research is not absolutely necessary. There could have been direct divine inspiration. And of course, there was inspiration, but that doesn't discount research or interviews or gathering the historical data, which is something Luke obviously did. Luke's birth account also seems that he is constantly illustrating Jesus as a man by describing those human traits and emotions. Would you agree with that? Yes, and some scholars, when they try to differentiate the four Gospels in terms of emphasis, they say that Luke is the gospel of the Son of Man, John is the gospel of the Son of God, Matthew's the gospel of the, the Messiah or the King of Israel, Mark is the gospel of the servant. Mark alone among the four evangelists does not make any reference to the birth of Jesus. John's reference is strictly theological. He tells us what the incarnation is, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John 1.14, that's his sole reference, nothing about magi, nothing about uh, swaddling clothes, just the theology of what happened. Matthew quotes from Old Testament a lot. It shows Jesus as the Messiah of Jewish people. Was he writing mostly to the Jews? Well, he was, and and I'd like to make an apologetics point here, and and most of our listeners will know that we mean apologetics in the sense not of making an apology, but of making a defense of the gospel claims. One of the greatest defense of the gospel claims is that Matthew was featured at all, because had it been a conspiracy, the contrivance of a narrative to persuade the Jews about something that really didn't happen, and of course this is what secular people contend, that the whole thing is made up. Had it been a conspiracy, Matthew would have never been enlisted for the simple reason that he was a tax collector. Now, the Jews through history have been the victims of horrible bigotry and and prejudice. They themselves were not above prejudice, especially in the first century. They loathed the Gentiles. There was a group of people they hated worse than the Gentiles. That was the Samaritans. But there was a group of people they hated worse than the Samaritans. You know, the the Gentiles and Samaritans couldn't help it that they were Gentiles and Samaritans. But they hated the tax collectors even more because they could help it. They had sold out their nation for money. They were on the Roman payroll, and they were notorious for extorting extra taxes so that their margins would be broader. So... If there was a conspiracy, can you imagine saying, well, Matthew, you're a tax collector. You've got great credibility with the Jews. Why don't you write the first gospel or the gospel to the Jews? That would be madness, absolute madness. And so these conspiracy theories are laughable. My good friend, Ronnie Collier-Stevens, who has been gracious to stop by and share with us as we reflect on the birth of Jesus Christ, the significance, the uniqueness of that wonderful birth. We pick up talking about Joseph and Mary as they were a betrothed couple. They didn't live together. There was a, a marriage commitment that was really stronger in their culture than an engagement that we're used to hearing about in marriage today. Yes. To be betrothed in the Jewish culture of the first century 
was tantamount to being married. And for Joseph to discover that his fiancée was expecting a child was every bit as traumatic as a loving husband would discover that his wife had been unfaithful to him. So Matthew's account of the Christmas story begins with sort of unrelieved trauma. By the way, it's very significant when we look at the providence of God in that story. God does not shelter us from extremities, from catastrophes. He shows up in the midst of them. We see that very dramatically in two places in the story. One is that God dispatched the angel to Joseph after he discovered that Mary was expecting a child. Now, it's almost disturbing to think about that. He could have easily told him before, but when you realize the pain that God allowed for Joseph to go through, well, he allowed that first Joseph to go through a lot of pain too, but he was preparing him for exaltation. He was preparing him for the greatest privilege that any father had ever known, a greater privilege than Abraham, a greater privilege than the father of Moses or the father of of David. But he let him suffer first in preparation. Well, so you would think if God really had his hand on the whole procedure that she wouldn't have had to travel in the ninth month at a very minimum that a decent place would be available once they arrived for her to bear her child. None of that happened. And yet, did God care? Well, God cared more about them than he's ever cared about anybody, but he allowed them that difficulty. That's an important, tangential, practical lesson for every believer. Ronnie, I think it's too important that we camp here a moment on the significance of this birth being a virgin birth. The Christmas story is clotted with miracles. Secular people, unbelieving people, people who don't study the Bible, they have the notion that some kind of magic takes place in every page of the Bible. That's not true. There are really only three eras of biblical history which feature a significant number of miracles. One is the generation of the Exodus. One is the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. And one is the ministry of Jesus and the apostles, beginning with the birth narratives. And, of course, the whole notion of a miracle is that it's an exception in the normal laws of nature. Now, if a person is an atheist, then it's understandable why he would discount all the miracles. But the fact is, if you believe in God, then you're affirming the admissibility that God might do something different. You know, natural law, what's called natural law, the laws of nature, that's what God does on a normal working day. If God wants to take a holiday and do something different, he works a miracle. And his miracles have made our holidays. And it's no great thing for God to allow a baby to be conceived in the womb of a virgin without male agency, without a biological male being involved, making a contribution to the conception. Maybe that's impossible in nature, according to the normal laws, but Jesus is an exceptional human being. He's the God-man. The formal name that scholars have given him is he's the theanthropic person. There's only one example of that in the universe, in history. And you take something like uh, the star, and we don't know exactly what the star was. We know that it's called a star. It would be no great problem for God to make an actual star to behave in the way that thing that the Magi saw behaved, because it was God who originally invested the stars with their intrinsic properties. But he's making an exception. So 
we shouldn't be surprised that if God is sending his son to be born in a man, then the great event would be attended by clusters of miracles everywhere before and after. Mary and Joseph moved to Bethlehem for a census. We have census that are taken today. Yeah, they were subjected to the normal difficulties and frustrations and privations of other human beings. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about two houses with different foundations in Matthew 7. The houses have different foundations, but they encounter the same storm. Joseph and Mary actually encountered greater difficulties than normal Galileans of the first century because they weren't able to go home after the census. Instead of going back to Galilee, back to Nazareth from Bethlehem, they reversed the pattern of the Exodus and they went to Egypt. They were also subjected to greater difficulties because of this great privilege that God gifted them with because there were people in Galilee who knew that she was expecting a child before she began living with the man that she married. And we actually see this in John 8. It's not overwhelmingly clear, but when Jesus is interacting with his enemies, they say, we were not born of fornication. We know who our father is. And the implication is we also believe these false rumors about you and what your conception was like. You know, God's providence was not designed to shelter them from all difficulty. God's providence meant that they had the greatest privilege in the world. The Son of God was going to grow up in their household. You know, there was two angelic proclamations, one to Zechariah and, of course, the one to Mary for the birth of Jesus. But up until those announcements, there had been 400 years yes. of silence, still continuing to have temple worship, temple sacrifices, the routine of their religion, but no real divine voice of God. Yes, there was no prophet. There was no written revelation. And John the Baptist broke that silence. As a matter of fact, with the announcement to Zacharias that his aged wife was going to have a baby, that actually was the dawn of the Messianic age. That was what everyone had been waiting on since Malachi. Again, the fullness of time. The fullness of time, as it says in Galatians 4.4. Going back to Joseph, we mentioned that God didn't tell him the way he told Mary at the beginning, that you're going to have a son. It was after Mary had told him, I've had this visit by an angel, I'm going to have the Messiah. I doubt very seriously if Mary told him. It was probably someone in the family told him. Any time they had together would have been heavily chaperoned. I can't imagine that Mary would have burdened with that task of breaking the news to him. Of course, I don't know. It's speculation on both sides. It had to be the most traumatic thing in his life. What does it say about Joseph in the midst of that, in the midst of the emotion of that? We heard this in a dream. You know, it's one thing to hear a message from God. It's another thing to respond faithfully to that message. Yes, and it was a hard message. But it was a message which made less difficult something even harder, the idea that she would have been unfaithful. You know, God is very counterintuitive, and by that I mean he does the opposite of what we would expect. He does the opposite of what we would do. So when the whole nation was begun, he appears to this aged couple. She's barren. He's 75 years old. And he says, you're going to have a baby. And we don't want to get too detailed here. Basically, he was saying, so act like you're on your honeymoon. So then 
when the Messiah is sent to the nation, he appears to a young couple, and he says, you're going to be married, but you're not going to have a honeymoon. Refrain from everything that would be intuitive, that would be the human choice and the human expectation. So sometimes we know that God is saying something because we realize, well, no human being would have ever said that. You know, it's something so utterly different. There was another angelic announcement to the shepherds. They were out in the fields. Correct. Why is it important for shepherds? I mean, these are the least recognized in society of their day to receive such a message from heaven. Well, I think one reason it's important is because that the plan was always for Jesus to come to the poor. And when he announces, well, one of the instances where he's launching and announcing this whole thing is starting happened in the synagogue in Nazareth, which is reported in Luke 4, where he reads from the Isaiah scroll. And he says, I've come to preach the gospel to the poor. Here we have the picture of the angels who are on high. They're lofty. They're exalted. They frequent the very throne room of God, who come to these lowly men who are manual laborers who work the third shift. And God sends his messengers to those blue-collar laborers on the third shift. Jesus is far over us. That's who he is. That's who he's always been. But the incarnation means, Christmas means, that he came to be far under us, not merely by being born in a poor family. We know they were a poor family because of the sacrifice they made at the temple after his birth. It was the sacrifice prescribed for the poorest people. But he came to become sin for us and to ingest the whole wrath of God upon our sin, an unimaginably low place. To envision that place, being in that place, is harder than to imagine being the king of angels. There was men called magi, wise men. They're often associated with the nativity set where we see the birth of Christ, but I think we'll find out the actual visit with the Magi weren't at the actual birth of Christ. Well, I'm not a scholar. I'm just a student like our listeners, although we may have some scholars listening who could teach me on this topic. I don't think it could possibly have been as long as two years later. Now, it is virtually certain that it was after the manger and the stable scene. There are a couple reasons for that. Number one, it says in Matthew 2 that they came to the house. Well, Jesus wasn't born in a house. He was born in a stable. So the Holy Family, if we may call them that, had been removed to quarters by the time the Magi arrive. Also, the Greek word which is used for the child is not the word that's normally used for the newest infant. And so we can be sure that it wasn't immediately. But, you know, there was a two-year sojourn in Egypt. They wouldn't have been in Bethlehem two years later. They would have been in Nazareth. So there is a search. Now, the greatest argument that it could have been two years was the response of Herod, that he killed all children two years and younger. But I think that speaks more to the bloodthirsty nature of Herod's murderous personality. You know, Herod killed three of his children, and he killed the only wife that he loved. So I think if it had been two years, I think that Herod would have killed all children four years and younger. He wanted to make sure 
he expanded the time frame to be sure he got the right one. That's what kind of fiend Herod was. So it was definitely after the manger, but I think could have been two weeks. Were they students of the Torah and knowing that the Messiah was going to be coming to earth one day? I think the best guess that we have is that they had a fragment of Daniel's prophecy. They very likely came from Persia. As you know, Daniel's influence, his office during the captivity, straddled the Babylonian episode and the successor empire to the Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians. And Daniel was a prince among seers, S-E-E-R-S, this guild of magi to which these men belonged. We don't know how many of them there were. Obviously, the traditional idea is three, but we infer that from the three gifts. There could have been 30 of them. There could have been two of them. Could have been 15 of them. We don't know. But very likely, they were Zoroastrians from Persia. Not certainly, but probably. I think because of who Daniel was and what Daniel did, but mainly because of what Daniel wrote, Daniel, more than any other Old Testament prophet, zeroed in on the time that Messiah would be born. Once they saw this prodigy in the sky, which was unlike anything they'd ever seen, once they consulted whatever fragment they had of Daniel's writings, they could have had writings of Daniel that we don't have. They probably said, this is it. we got to get going. And how many years before Christ's birth did Daniel write those prophecies? Well, he was probably deported from Jerusalem in 586 B.C., so it was in the 6th century B.C., Wow, quite a bit of time than seeing the significance of that star. Well, Daniel would have been the ideal, the gold standard, a hero in this guild of astronomers. Now, I say astronomers, it would also have in- included astrology. We have to remember that these men were involved in what we would call the occult, which shows the gracious grace of God, that he didn't come merely to punish false religionists or people who were involved in occultic practices, which were clearly forbidden in Torah, but Christ came to offer them salvation. And we see God's grace extended to the Gentiles. Matthew is the gospel to the Jews, to a point, but Matthew is the only one who tells us about the Magi. And Matthew is the one who includes the Gentile women in his genealogy in chapter 1. So he's really in the face of Jewish bigotry and resistance because, number one, he's a tax collector. Number two, he tells us about the commendation that Jesus gives the centurion, the Roman occupier, in chapter 8, right after the Sermon on the Mount. No, I've not seen such faith. No, not in all Israel. And what he's saying is this Gentile has more faith than any Jew. Think of that. Matthew doesn't pull any punches. And it was Gentiles... Gentile occultists, people who are involved in magic, who worship Jesus first. The first time worship is mentioned in the New Testament is the reference to the Magi. As we conclude this program reflecting on this unique birth and life of Jesus Christ, what is the gospel, and why is the gospel important for me today? The gospel is that God is really there, and he's really holy, and that he created us upright and holy in our first human parents. But Adam and Eve sinned against God, and we have inherited their nature as sinners. Anyone who's ever raised a child knows that you don't teach a child to become a sinner. You teach a child to do the right thing. 
he instinctively will do the wrong thing without correction. And God's plan to save us from our sins was to send his son to become really human and to take the punishment for our sin, the whole wrath of God. And it wasn't just six hours on the cross. It was something unimaginable because he ingested hell for us. We're not dealing in normal human times and spaces here. Something unimaginable is happening. And that whole gift began at Christmas. And the point was that we might know God personally because he came to know us personally. And Jesus shows us in a human way who God really is, what his holiness is, what his love is, what his pardon is for sin, so that if we believe the story, we may have eternal life. Faith is everything. Sin can be dealt with by receiving the way that God defeats sin. We receive it by faith, by believing. This is what John says in the two verses before John 1.14. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, the only begotten of the Father. 12 and 13 says, But to as many as received him, to these he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So the gospel is to receive Jesus as our sin bearer and our substitute. How is he our substitute? He died for us. How is he our sin bearer? God's wrath was deposited on him and deflected from us because he absorbed it himself. This is an unimaginable construct. We're so familiar with it, we forget how different it is from what any human would ever imagine, from what any human could ever make up. Ronnie Collier Stevens, thank you, my dear friend, for helping us to reflect and think about our Savior in such a wonderful way. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you and to all who listen. God bless you all. Merry Christmas to you and to your family. I'm Byron Tyler. Thank you.